The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, May 25th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In a few short hours, we will find out the answer to a political question we did not know needed answering. To what extent does body slamming a reporter hurt one's chances to be elected to Congress from Montana? Mitigating circumstance one. It is from Montana. Mitigating circumstance two, about two-thirds of the vote is in. The ballots already cast in early voting before they found out that Greg G. and Forte went all top turnbuckle on poor Ben Jacobs, hurting the journalist's elbow and breaking his glasses. Mitigating circumstance three, the dude wore glasses. Nerd. Maybe, now to go back to mitigating circumstance two, maybe actually it was a brilliant example of the GOP long game. Hear me out. Nothing does more to call into question the wisdom of early voting, a policy the GOP generally opposes. Nothing does more to hurt that as an institution than a candidate body slamming a reporter a day before an election after everyone votes. Well, maybe doing body shots off a supporter. Either way, it's pretty clever. Now, the question that set off Mr. Gianforte was about congressional budget office scoring of the Republican-passed Health Care Act. Gianforte referred questions to his spokesman for comment, and then, as the best practices of corporate communication would have it, he opened a can of whoop-ass. Yeah, I'm just here to comment on the congressional budget office scoring of the Health Care Act and kick ass. And I'm all out of comments on the congressional budget office scoring of the Health Care Act. You want to know about healthcare? Here, I'll give you some firsthand knowledge. Yeah! What the CBO scoring did say was that 23 million Americans would, as a result of this act, lose healthcare coverage and one person his glasses. And maybe, I'm going to say not likely, one Montana hothead his future job. On the show today, it is an Antan Twig. Our name for a three-week period where we run down the mistakes, the corrections, and the flubs. But first, we've gone through Jim Comey's Rolodex. We've cross-referenced it with past guests of the show. So Ben Wittes of the Lawfare blog is here to join us and talk security. Perhaps you know him from the Lawfare blog. Perhaps you know him from the podcast of that name. Or perhaps you just know him from being an excellent source for a story in the New York Times, an on-the-record source, and therefore not a quibbling, dishonest source. He's Ben Wittes. He's a, he's a friend of James Comey. But before I even knew that, I knew he was an expert on all things law and security. Hello, Ben. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back. And the la- either the last time or the time before that, we talked about ENCH, which is an acronym which stands for, you could say it. It stands for Errant National Security Horseshit. And a lot of that's inspired, go- yeah. inspired by your segments with Maria Konnikova on Is That Bullshit? Yeah, we're, we're doing horseshit with you, bullshit with her. Luckily, folks, there are a lot of other barnyard animals for us to cover. <laughs> but let's do the national security stuff. Is most of the horseshit that's going on now in running interference for 
the Trump administration and the Russian investigation, in other words, counter-narratives that don't seem to make that much sense, even if we don't know exactly what happened? The alternate explanation is like, what? Well, so I think there's a few kinds of ench going on simultaneously, right? One is denials of things that then turn out to be true, like we fired the FBI director because Rod Rosenstein recommended it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, you know, because of the outrageous, horrible, unfair manner that he treated Hillary Clinton. Only then to have the president a few days later say, no, actually, I was just thinking about the Russia investigation when I did it. And it was my decision. And that Rosenstein memo had nothing to do with it. The second is things that people say in the course of defending the president that are kind of laughably untrue from the beginning, like Sarah Huckabee Sanders talking about the lines of FBI agents who have, you know, come to thank her for the president, you know, getting rid of their detested boss, only then to admit a few days later that she actually doesn't really know very many FBI agents. And uh, and then the third is the, which is in some ways you know, the least funny and, and most upsetting, are the people who have had to turn themselves in knots in public conversations, the good, decent people who've had to really turn themselves in knots in public statements in order to pretend that these wildly inappropriate things that the president has done are actually normal, consistent with his duties and and were intentional. And the, the most striking example of that is poor H.R. McMaster, who, you know, uh, is a person of, of serious reputation and uh, for, among other things, probity, who you know, who had to go out there and deny that anything extraordinary had happened when the president dished a whole lot of highly sensitive classified material to an adversary foreign power in a fashion that betrayed an ally. Okay, let's go through a couple of the latest headlines and you tell me how significant, how important they are. Let's start with Jeff Sessions not disclosing all his contacts with Russians. He says, as a senator, I have lots of contacts. I don't have to disclose them. Uh, good excuse, bad excuse, significant, not significant. As a general matter, if you learned that somebody had undisclosed contacts in the context of a long SF-86 report, you'd say uh, that's not the biggest deal in the world. He probably forgot. But uh, the idea that Jeff Sessions, of all people, did not disclose contacts with the Russians of all countries in the context of this investigation of all things strikes me as a very big deal. And, you know, the Justice Department issued a statement that he did it on the advice of a Justice Department lawyer. And I uh, would be very interested to know whether he didn't disclose a whole lot of other stuff that would be consistent with that. But as far as I know, the SF-86 does not exempt, I haven't looked at it carefully with this question in mind, it doesn't exempt uh, stuff that you do in the routine business of being a senator. Right. So somewhere North of not dotting all his Cyrillic eyes and Tez. 
Ex-CIA Chief John Brennan testifying before the House Intelligence Committee disclosed that he had conversations with, well, members of that committee in private uh, phone calls, but also the Russians based on him getting wind of the Russians trying to influence Donald Trump. There was, I know you're a listener to the show, I played a big exchange between him and Trey Gowdy, where Gowdy seemed to emphasize the word evidence and Brennan kept talking about intelligence and information. What's the significance of that? And can you parse some of the importance of those words? What do you think was going on with uh, trying to say evidence versus intelligence? Yeah. So these are two people who speak a very different language. You know, Trey Gowdy is a former prosecutor and John Brennan is a long-serving intelligence officer. And as a general matter, prosecutors consider, you know, talk about evidence, which is, you know, something that you can introduce in court in support of a proposition. Intelligence officers don't use the rule of evidence. To be intelligence, it just has to be probative of something that you're interested in. But some of it is this dispute was not a matter of terminology. It was a person saying, here's the information that I saw and what I concluded from it, and somebody, in in this case, Gowdy, trying to throw darts at that by applying a standard that he, I think, pretty well knew was not the way Brennan would or should have thought about that material at the time. And is there any other interpretation of what Gowdy was doing other than running interference? Can you make the case that by holding it to the standard of evidence, he was trying to actually find out more information? You know, one of the problems that you have in this setting as a member of Congress is the question of, like, what standards should you be applying? If you believe that there's some reason to believe that the intelligence forces of the Russians tried to infiltrate and influence the Trump campaign and that there were some contacts, but that that material is not evidence that would stand up in court. Do you say, well, then I don't care because, you know, it's not material you could prove in court? Or do you say, wait a minute, that's not the standard I'm operating under here? And I, I think, you know, that that's a question that is actually not wholly illegitimate, you know, you're not, and the answer is you're not going to do quite either of them, right? If you believed that Donald Trump had in fact secretly colluded with the Russians and you had strong information to that effect, you would impeach him on that basis even if that evidence was not of a sort that would stand up in court just because you had very high confidence in it. So you're not eventually going to apply the standards of admissibility that a federal court would use. On the other hand, it's not unreasonable to say, wait a minute, there's a huge amount of smoke here, but let's focus on what we can actually say with a lot of confidence. And Asking about the quality of material is not a crazy way of isolating the signal here among the noise. Got it. I want to stick to the Russia investigation. And so now we come to a couple of questions about James Comey, who, go ahead, give your most succinct disclaimer. We're friends. I don't speak for him. I'm, you know, happy to give my thoughts on matters pertaining to Jim Comey. Okay, here we go. You tweeted after 
Comey was fired, but before a special prosecutor, special counsel was named, you tweeted, I've known Rod Rosenstein a long time. I've always thought well of him. I was cheered by his nomination. I misjudged him completely. Now that there is a special prosecutor, do you come off that at all? Well, I don't come off the judgment that Rod made a catastrophic error. He really blew it. Uh, That said, Rod did a national service when he appointed Bob Mueller, and he um, deserves a lot of credit. I think he's done a pretty decent job of mitigating the damage that he participated in causing, but I I don't think the mitigation is total, and I do think he uh, has done a lot of, you know, a lot of damage to, among other things, his own reputation in the course of this exercise. So at what point should Rod Rosenstein have intervened to not allow himself to be put in that position? At what point should Rod Rosenstein have said, no, I could think of a couple. When asked to write the Comey letter, when asked to be a member of the Trump administration, or maybe just the tone and how he wrote the Comey letter? I think the precise answer to your question necessarily depends on what he knew exactly and when he knew it. Mm -hmm. Assuming that he did not know what was on Trump's mind, I think the most important error that he made there was knowing that the Russia investigation was ongoing, knowing that there had been some inappropriate contacts between the White House and the FBI, some of which had spilled out into the press, he did not pick up the phone and call Jim Comey and say, look, the president's intending to remove you, and I've been asked to write a memo memorializing concerns that I have that are real. Is there anything I need to know? And I think had he asked that question, he might have learned some of the things that the entire country has learned over the last week through these various leaks about the loyalty oath dinner, about the fact that the president had made overtures to Comey that Comey had had to push back and say, you can't make investigative inquiries directly of the FBI. He might have learned that Comey had been asked to drop the Flynn investigation. I think his fundamental error was very likely that he didn't familiarize himself with the factual background in its entirety of why the president was doing what he was doing at the moment that he was doing it. Okay, but if I take myself, I take your point. And also he could have possibly asked President Trump what his motivations were. And you never know, maybe Trump would say, I'm sick of this Russian thing, thus uh, obviating the conversation that could have happened with Comey. Maybe though, he says, all right, I could pick up the phone and call Comey. And what if if he tells me some things that make me say, I'm not going to write the letter? Then what happens? It's because I had a personal conversation with Comey. It's not illegal. I could get accused of being part of the deep state. So then what do I do? I, I resign on principle. So then what happens? He appoints someone who will do this. So then how's America better? On the other hand, if I don't do this and I give the president what he wants, I could always appoint a special counsel and it's going to be Robert Mueller, I hope. So therefore, it's okay. Uh, not calling Comey. Perhaps I look embarrassed for a week or two, but in the end, we have a fail-safe option. I think there are a few problems with that. First of all, I don't see any evidence that that's what happened, that Mm -hmm. he participated in this particular charade as part of a grand chess strategy to get Bob Mueller in. If he did, 
and he was playing sort of three-dimensional chess while I was playing checkers. I'll deal with that fact pattern when it emerges, but I, I don't see a lot of evidence of that at this point. More broadly, even if that were the case, I would still have a problem with it because one thing that the entire sequence of events, if you start at that dinner, loyalty oath dinner, and end with the removal of Comey and then the subsequent days boasting about it to the Russians, you know, if you put all that together, you have a pattern that looks pretty obstructive on the president's part. I would think if you were the deputy attorney general and the acting attorney general for purposes of the Russia investigation, you would not want to implicate yourself in that larger pattern of obstructive behavior. Now, I'm not saying that that, that pattern amounts to a criminal act or criminal behavior, and I'm certainly not saying that Rod implicated himself in criminal behavior. But I am saying that a careful lawyer given the opportunity to blunder his way into a pattern that any reasonable group of people would look at, look at and scratch their heads and say, gosh, is the president obstructing an FBI investigation here, uh, would probably decline to participate in that, even if it was some kind of grand effort to get Bob Mueller to be special prosecutor. And this is my last question. Thank you so much, Ben. You're the best. This is just the one thing that I don't think enough people are worried about. Why won't the president one day or the Justice Department fire Mueller? Oh, so the answer is uh, there is no reason why the president can't fire Mueller. Under a certain set of regs, he has to have cause to do so. But you know, you can you can engineer it if you want. The real reason he wouldn't do that is a political reason. It would be, you know, that would be the Saturday Night Massacre. To do that would be so politically catastrophic, unless there were some particularly good reason to. I mean, if Mueller, you know, ate a kid or something. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, barring some really grotesque impropriety by Bob Mueller, which that ain't going to happen, you know, that would be a politically uh, ruinous thing for the president to do. It would be like dressing up as Nixon for Halloween and firing the special prosecutor, you know. But the check on that is a political check. It's not a legal check. So for, for the first time ever, you're saying, I would put it past Trump to do that. Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm trying to no, I, I look, I do not assume that the president is playing with a full bag of marbles here. And what I would say is it is not a rational act to remove Bob Mueller and that that is the, the check. And I think the consequences of that politically would be disastrous. That may or may not stop him at some point from doing it. The copiously marbled like a nice steak, Benjamin Wittes, senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings, the Lawfare blog and the Lawfare podcast are his. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. Hello, this is an Antan Twig. Every three weeks on a Friday, we come together and we talk about the mistakes I've made. One is that it's not a Friday, and two, it's been more than three weeks. But that's okay. It's my institution. I named the Antan Twig. 
we didn't we didn't really make any mistakes. We're that good. So I have a couple, shall we say, amplifications. Uh, there was this trendlet going around of talking about Trump's supporters as guys who wear steel-toed shoes. And I said, well, you know, there was populism in the Netherlands. I guess they'd wear, you know, cedar-toed clogs up there. But no, several listeners wrote in to show us pictures of steel-toed clogs. They actually wear steel-toed clogs in the Netherlands. Secondly, Roger Ailes, it was said by an over-the-top observer in Rolling Stone, was the worst American in history. And I said, no, there are other worst Americans like everyone who owns slaves. And then Claire of Grand Rapids, Michigan, did point out, actually, counterfactual, but had Roger Ailes lived in the antebellum South, we can't prove that he wouldn't have owned slaves. In fact, Claire supposes she thinks he would have owned slaves. Well, we don't know about that. But we also don't know if a lot of these slave owners, like, let's say, Zachary Taylor, might have harassed female employees if females were allowed to be employees. So it works both ways. And in either case, I still say the murderers were the really, really unjustified murderers. They are worse Americans than Roger Ailes. They, on Bizarro Judgment Day, they will be called to account first. Ian Shank of Lima, Ohio, wrote in to say, Lima, Ohio. That's what he was saying. He said, I I pronounced it wrong. But here's the thing. I had a choice to make. This is what I was doing. It was in the credits. I don't know if you guys know this, but I often do some sort of wacky credits. I inject some whimsy into the dirge that is normally podcast credits. And I said that Chris Berube, just producer, got his degree from a little-known correspondence college in Toledo, Spain, not Ohio. So there, I'm injecting and introducing the premise. And then I said, though, the degree was in the history of Lima, Ohio, not Peru. All right. At that point, when I said Lima, I could have gone with Lima. But if I had gone with Lima, that would be forecasting that I was going to say Ohio. Well, it helps to have a knowledge that Lima is how they pronounce it in Ohio and Lima is how they pronounce it in Peru and the bean factory. Anyway, you see my comedic choice. I stand by it. But Ian Shank, yeah, I know. Lima, Ohio. And I have another correction. Chris just told me that Ian Shank's actually from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So not even from Lima. Still, the torch burns bright on the Lima thing with Shank. All right. Let us give our uh, Lobstar Awards to my favorite listeners or Twitterers or Facebook interactors. First, I will single out Megan G., who's at Meglet. She just quoted something I said, which was, I'm not going to piss up your leg and tell you it's raining unless you have a specific meteorologist fetish. She thought that was funny. And I I appreciate when people uh, pull out a line in the show and say, yes, that really made me laugh. But the reason I wanted to name her associate or assistant lobster was this. That was the very last line in the show. That was after I say the gist and before I say the umperu deperu part. So it really heartens me to know that you listen all the way through. Thank you very much, runner-up lop star Megan. Next, we come to Simon Banderob, who writes to us and says, besides being a podcast listener, I'm a podcast completist. We do have 475 shows, so hats off to you, and thank you just for that. And he says he's completed a show called Sinica, S-I-N-I-C-A, but, this, but it's Sino because it's about China, so it might be Sinica. Anyway, it's about China, And he noted that on one episode of the show, they did a thing where they set the history of the Manchu dynasty to the tune of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Let's hear some of that. 
So respecting his word, never thought it absurd. Home they bore him, their arms interlinking. Okay, let's stop hearing some of that. And Simon asked me, I don't know if you still stand by your theory from June 19th, 2014, completist, that all songs can be sung to the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald's tune. Yes, but you have to remember, I wasn't saying you could write a song to that tune. I was saying that all existing songs can fit into the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald's tune. We can dance if we want to. We could leave our friends behind if they don't dance. It's fine by me. If your friends don't dance and if they don't dance, that's okay by me. Right? See? See? Maybe I'm just like my father. He was never satisfied. Maybe I'm just like my mother. This is what it sounds like when doves cry. It's better. It's not just any song can be sung to it. It improves every song. And finally, the lobstar of the Antan Twig. Usually, it's an award in name only. I mean, I actually have the physical award, and I'm you know, usually uh, sending these out to the engraver, and your name will be remembered in history. But I have something tangible. And I have something tangible for this Antan Twig's lobstar, Margaret Frechette. Because the other day on the show, Tom Ricks, from memory, recited a part of W.H. Auden's 1968 and it was about the ogre, and he compared the ogre to Donald Trump. And what Margaret Frechette did was she created a beautiful visual of the words to this section of the poem next to a really ugly picture of Donald Trump. So what I'd like to do with this Antan Twig is to send it back to her in audio form if we could cue Mr. Ricks, and we could mix in Mr. Trump, and we could have an audio tapestry of the ogre. The ogre does what ogres can, things quite impossible for man. But one thing is beyond his reach. The ogre cannot master speech. But I can always speak for myself and the Russians, zero. Across the subjugated plain, among its desperate and slain. We've just launched 59 missiles heading to Iraq. Well, you headed to Syria. Yes, heading toward Syria. The ogre stalks with hands on hips, and drivel gushes from his lips. But when I do come up with a plan that I like and that perhaps agrees with mine, or maybe doesn't. Well, thank you for listening to all the drivel gushing from my lips. This ends another Antan Twig. Margaret Frechette, you are the lobstar of this Antan Twig. That's it for today's show. You know, it's unfortunate that this aggressive behavior from a liberal journalist and just producer Chris Berube created this scene at our campaign volunteer barbecue. Mary Wilson, just producer, thinks the very fact that a candidate is barbecuing his campaign volunteers should make headlines. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, wonders why a congressional candidate's body slam is disqualifying if the presidential candidate brought a foreign object into the ring with no consequences. I beseech you to check out our show on Apple Podcasts, and when you are at Apple Podcasts, leave a review. 
It's no longer the iTunes store. Forget about that. Expunge it from your mind. Apple Podcast. The gist. We wonder if Gianforte still wants to build that wall and oppose NAFTA, or if he's now looking to make some extra scratch as a lucador. El candidito bandito. Peru, de Peru, de Peru, and thanks for listening.